Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you might go ahead and turn them to the book of John in the 13th chapter. That'll be one of the first passages that we look at this morning. While you're turning, let me take just a moment to express my appreciation for the presence of each of you and to make the same acknowledgement that Barrett did. We certainly appreciate those of you that are mothers at this time. I'm mindful of a piece that Brother James Adams wrote numbers of years ago that appeared in our bulletin, which he pointed out that none of us would elevate our mothers to the position of or over our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and seek to worship them this morning. But our Lord and Savior himself, God, has told us that the virtuous woman is worthy of praise. And Proverbs talks about both the children and the father should rise up and call them blessed. And so we honor you. I've told you before that I sometimes have trouble figuring out just what title to put on an article or a sermon. I've told you before that I can remember when I was in school and we used to have what they called achievement tests and they'd be a part on math and I'd do great on that and then they'd have a part on reading, and one of the things they'd often say was, what do you think should be the title? And I'd always get it wrong. And I remember being in the counselor's office one time saying, how can you score so high on math and not be able to read and understand this? Well, my thoughts of what ought to be the title <clears throat> just wasn't there. And I tell you that because I've struggled a little bit this evening or this morning trying to figure out just what I was going to entitle this lesson. But I'm going to call it, We Are, So Be. And what I want to do is recognize that we exist, and I think that's axiomatic. But what do we exist for, and why, and what do we want in our life? I want to suggest to you that we oftentimes want to be happy. And a lot of people are seeking happiness, but they are not seeking it in the right place. And I want to suggest to you that we should be confident in our salvation. I know some people that aren't confident at all. I know some people that are of the world, and and they give no thought whatsoever about Jesus, about Christ, about our salvation, about eternity. They're living in the moment, and that's all they're living for. And usually these people are not going to be happy or they will become unhappy. Because like the book of Ecclesiastes in the second chapter, and the man who who seemingly had it all, when he saw the vanity of that, that that's here under the sun, and then you pass on and all of this is left behind, you either turn bitter toward life or hate life, or you get your mind set right. And some who are even members of the church, they're not confident about salvation. They, sometimes you ask them, you think you're going to heaven? They say, well, I hope I am. I'm not real sure. That doesn't sound very confident, does it? And yet I think that we're told we can be confident. And then the third thing I would suggest to you is, as Christians, we should be a part of the church, and we should be wanting that church to grow. I, I hear sometimes, and they say, well, how's the church doing? And they'll say, well, I'm holding, we're holding our own. 
And I wonder, have you ever read the parable of the talent? Where the man that had the one talent man, he kept his one talent that he was displeasing with the Lord? And is it enough just to say, well, we're holding our own. Shouldn't we want to be adding value to the church and helping it grow and helping it glorify God? Does any of that sound good? Being happy, being confident, being of value to the church? I hope it does. And those are the areas that I want us to address this morning as we talk about we are. So why not be happy and confident and of value? And I want to begin by just reminding you that all three of these things are available to us in Christ Jesus. Look, if you would, to the book of John in the 13th chapter in verse 17. And these are the words of Jesus as he's with his apostles on the last supper prior to the time that he goes out to the garden and then is delivered up for crucifixion. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm reading from the New King James, and it says, blessed are you. And maybe that's a good translation, but the old King James would say, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And in the Greek lexicon I have on my computer, it says the Greek, and then right up under that word blessed, it has the word happy. And so here's Jesus saying, if you do these things, you can be blessed. You can be happy. And then turn over, if you would, to the book of 1 John and the 5th chapter. And notice what is said about our confidence in the Lord Jesus and in our salvation. I'm reading from 1 John 5 and, and verse 13. And John says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now notice, he said, I'm, I'm writing these things. What he's written to us in 1 John, he says, I write these things so that you may believe and so that you may know. That's confident, isn't it? So that you may know that you have eternal life. I know that you and I are not the judge of our own faith. And for that reason, I can't just say, I know I'm going to heaven no matter what, and, and I've judged myself. I know that God is the judge, but he's given me his will, and, and I can live by his will, and I can know that he's going to accept his will. I tell some people sometimes that that at least Christians ought to be surprised if they get to the judgment and they're not saved. We ought to think we are. And if I think I'm not, then I need to be getting something right so that I can at least think that I'm going to be saved. But this attitude of, I hope I do, but I, I just don't know. I'm really not sure. That's far different than the attitude that John is presenting in First John the 5th chapter when he said, I tell you these things so that you can believe them, so that you can know that you have eternal life. And this idea about being of value to the church, what about 1 Corinthians, the third chapter and verse 6, when Paul writes to this church that had lots of problems, and yet he said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gives the increase. Can't we plant and water and expect God to give the increase also? 
And shouldn't we desire to do that? And, and shouldn't that be our, our hope and part as a member of the Lord's body? So I want to talk to you the rest of the time about how we attain these three things, happiness and being confident in salvation and being of value to the church. And I want to start by talking with you about a good and right conscience. A good conscience is a must for salvation, or rather for, for happiness. And a right conscience is a must for salvation. Now, let me explain myself. A good conscience is one where your conscience is not telling you you're doing something bad. It's extremely hard to be happy if you have a conscience that is telling you that you're not living as you ought to live. A couple of examples. In the book of Genesis, in the fourth chapter, in verse 5 and 6, you remember Cain and Abel had offered their sacrifices, Cain had offered a sacrifice that wasn't pleasing to the Lord, and he recognized that, and it says his countenance fell. And then the Lord would speak to him, and he'd say, why is it that you're angry, and why is it your countenance has fallen? He recognized that he did not offer a sacrifice that was pleasing to the Lord, and the result of that was that he was angry, and his countenance fell. He's not happy, is what he's saying. Or think about the psalmist in Psalms 32. This is David writing, uh, seemingly after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba, and after Nathan maybe has said, Thou art the man, or as he thinks about these things. But he writes and he says, There was a time that I kept silent, and God's hand was heavy upon me. And he says, My, uh, like being dry mouth and so forth. My uh, miserable is the idea. And why was he that way? Because he recognized that he wasn't right with God anymore. His conscience told him that you're not what you ought to be. And he says, when I kept silent, God's hand was heavy upon me. I felt God's hand upon me. And maybe that's the way you feel if you're not living the right kind of life or if your conscience is, is telling you that you're not living the right kind of life. But let me point out also that while you might have a good conscience and it doesn't tell you that you're wrong and so you're happy, that doesn't necessarily mean you're right in the sight of God and that you have a reason to be confident toward salvation. You remember in the book of Acts and the 13th chapter, or excuse me, Acts the 23rd chapter in verse 1, uh, Paul writes and he says, talking to the council, he said, I have lived in all good conscience unto this day. I want you to think about this. This is Paul, and, and he's standing before the council at this time, and he's a Christian. But he's looking at his past life, and he says, I have lived in all good conscience unto this time. That means even when Paul was persecuting Christians, he was doing it, and he thought that he was doing right. But he wasn't right. In fact, he himself would write in the book of 1 Timothy in the first chapter and begin in verse 13 and talk about how I've been a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. And he says, I'm chief of sinners. Howbeit, because I did it in ignorant and unbelief, God was able and gracious to me, he said. And so we can have a good conscience and that conscience still not be right. And we feel good and so it doesn't make us feel bad like Cain or 
We don't feel the hand of God necessarily being heavy upon us like David did, but it doesn't mean we're right. We talk a lot about good conscience, but I suggest to you we need more than just a good conscience. We need a right conscience. And a right conscience is one that is set according to the Word of God. That's all the conscience does. It, it bears witness to what we think is right. And so I could be wrong, but if I'm thinking I'm right, I still feel happy and good. But that doesn't give me my confidence toward salvation unless I know my confidence or my conscience is in harmony with the Word of God. When the very first new car I bought was a 1975 Buick Century. And it had on it what was called a speed alert. Not a cruise control, but a speed alert. And what I could do, I could set this little gauge wherever I want to set it, and when I could reach that speed, it would begin to beep. And so most of the time, the speed limit was 55, and I had it set on 55, and if I got up 55 and started over 55, it'd beep, and I'd know to take my foot off the gas. But I could have set that speed alert to 70 or 80 when the speed limit was 55, and that thing would have never beat when I got up to 60, even though I was violating the speed limit, or 65, or if I said at 80, I could go even 70, and it's not going to beat, though at that point I'd be 15 to 20 miles above the speed limit now. And that's the way our conscience is. If we set it to the wrong standard, it's not going to poke us and warn us and say, hey, you're doing wrong. Get back on the right side of things. And we can go on and be happy and not be disturbed, but it doesn't mean we are right with God. And so what we really need to do is set our conscience as a right conscience and have a right conscience where we can do what we know the Scriptures teach and our conscience won't bother us and and because we've got it set according to the will of God, we can be confident toward our salvation. I want you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Philippians and the third chapter for a moment. Philippians 3. And I want you to look beginning at verse 13. Philippians 3 and verse 13. Paul says, Brethren, I do not count myself to apprehend it. He's talking about achieving righteousness and salvation and and so forth, and he says, I don't count myself as though I've already apprehended. Like I can just sit down and say, well, I was baptized, I've got it made. He said, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So he says, I, I don't take the position that I've been baptized and now I've got it made he realizes he still has to work. He still has to press toward that goal. He's given diligence to be everything God wants him to be. And may I just tell you that one reason some people aren't confident about their salvation is that they're not diligent. They know that one day maybe they're hitting on all cylinders and working for the Lord, but they know the next day that, that they're not doing anything and have no intention of doing anything. And so they don't have the real confidence. But Paul says... First of all, I don't count myself as having apprehended this salvation. I realize that I have to keep working. I have to keep pressing toward the mark. And then he says, therefore, let as many of us as mature have this mind. And if anything we, you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, 
Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So he says, we're always pressing. But he also says, I'm walking according to the rule wherein I've attained. And so we press, but we always walk wherein we've attained. And that's walking according to what is right according to God's word. We're trying our best to find out what's right in God's word. And then, because we're trying to find out what's right, we're going to do it. And because we're trying and we're doing our conscience is not going to bother us, and we're going to have some confidence about salvation, even. Uh, another passage I want to share with you as we talk particularly about happiness, but it also, again, bears in salvation. I want you to go back for a moment in the book of John in the 13th chapter. And you remember, we read the verse, and it said that if you do what I'm telling you to do, then you, you'll be blessed. But what was it that Jesus had done on this occasion, that he's saying, now, if you can understand what I've done and do it yourself, then you can be blessed or you can be happy. Well, this was the, the taking of the Last Supper, and though John doesn't record it for us, some of the other Gospels record him taking the Passover and eating that supper and then uh, instituting the Lord's Supper. But what John focuses on is how that Jesus, when they got ready to eat and, and as they ate, he took a towel, girded about himself, took a bowl of water, and he washed their feet. And then that's what he's saying. If you can understand what I've done, and you can do this, then you too can be blessed or happy. Now, is he saying we ought to just wash everybody's feet? That's not what he's saying. We do if that was the case, and we needed to. Remember, they walked in sandals, their feet hot and dusty. It was a way of showing hospitality. But what he's really getting across is he had humbled himself and he was serving them. And that's what he's talking about. That might include washing feet if that's a need, but it's in any way that we can humble ourselves and do those things that will serve other people. That's what he's talking about. And he says, if you can get that attitude where you're willing to humble yourself and serve others, then you can find this happiness or this blessedness that I'm talking about. I think all of us know that we're to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and that this is the great commandment in Matthew 22. I think we know that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, uh, the second part of that same commandment. And, and then he says that all the law and prophets are, are bound on that. And I think you and I know that we're supposed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and Jesus talks about this in the book of John in the 15th chapter, how that, that this is the love of God and that by doing this we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But what is love? It's not just a mushy feeling. It's, it's the idea of having somebody else's best interest at heart. And it means that we're willing to serve them and, and get to whatever it is that they need. And that if we are humbling ourselves and serving people and helping people, and we know that we're helping people, then that's going to make us feel better. And that's going to give us this happiness that we're talking about. It means, really, we're going to have to quit thinking so much about self and be selflessness, think more about others than we do ourselves. I don't remember what book it was. It's been a long time ago that I was reading some self-help book, but it, it told 
supposedly a true story about a woman that was bedridden, sick, griping, complaining all the time. And somebody visited her and told her, said, why don't you start thinking about other people? Just put the phone next to you and pick it up and call somebody and, and tell them some uh, good news or encourage them some. Or get some cards and write them and encourage other people. And she did that. And she got to feeling better. And soon she was up walking and soon she was out visiting. And a lot of times our happiness comes from turning our attention from ourselves unto other people. I heard the speak one time. I'd heard him say this in sermons, but I was at Florida College and he was speaking to a, a devotion afterwards. And he was kind of encouraging people to be selfless and go out and serve people. And he said, go do something for someone that they're not expecting. And may I add, just keep on doing that. And with that attitude, you'll probably find some happiness. And because this is what the Lord is teaching, that also gives us more confidence toward our salvation. So if you're looking for happiness, we are. And so be happy. And if you want to be happy, then, then remember, keep your conscience right. And secondly, Humble yourself and begin to serve others and be selflessness rather than selfish. But I go back now to this idea of confidence in salvation. The two that we've mentioned, right conscience and, and the idea of serving, that's a part of, of having confidence towards salvation because we realize we're doing what God said. But may I suggest to you that confidence really starts in salvation when we learn and understand and accept that Jesus is our Lord and our Christ and know and believe that to be the truth and to be our acceptance of it. Uh, we've said before that to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is Master. And he himself asked on one occasion, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? He's telling us if we recognize that he is Lord, then our attitude is, speak, Lord, your servant hears. You remember when Peter was in the boat and the Lord said, uh, roll out and cast your nets, and, and he said, we've been out there all day and the night. Then he said, but nevertheless, at thy word, I will. And that's the way we have to have, and that's the attitude that he's saying. We recognize Jesus is Lord. We recognize he's master. And our attitude is, I don't care what it is that Jesus tells me to do in the scriptures, that's what I'm going to do. And so we begin to do what he says to do. And then we recognize him to be Christ, that is the anointed, the Savior. And so we recognize that he is the way unto forgiveness and sins. I've told you before, Romans 3 and 23 and 24, we've all sinned, verse 23, come short of the glory of God, but then in verse 24, but I'll save you by grace, and then he says, you'll be justified through Jesus Christ, through redemption, and redemption is forgiveness of sins. And so he says, through Christ, through his sacrifice, through his blood, we can have the forgiveness of sins. And he is the way. He's the way, the truth, the life, and he's the only way. Acts 4 and verse 12, and no other name is there salvation other than the name of Jesus. And so we have to come to understand that Jesus is Lord and Christ and accept that and be buried with him in baptism in order to have that confidence that we're talking about so that we can have the forgiveness of sins. And we also need to remember 1 John that 
that we can sin and we can go to him in prayer and he will uh, intervene for us and we can have forgiveness of sins again. In the book of Ezekiel, in the 18th chapter, verse 20 through 22, Ezekiel uh, talks about how the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Uh, that's what keeps a lot of people from being happy. They recognize they sin. They recognize because of their sin, they have no hope in eternity. They know they're going to die. If they have any knowledge about the Scriptures, they know that they're condemned. And so only gloom and hell is ahead of them. But Ezekiel tells us that the soul that sinneth will die, but he goes on in the next verses and says, but if one has sinned and he will repent, he says, I'll forgive him. And he says, I'll remember that sin against him no more. What a blessed thought of knowing that that any time I sin, that I'm all my past sins are forgiven because I'm baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. And then even after that, that I can go to God in prayer if my heart's right and if I'm striving as Paul's talking about and ask for forgiveness or even ask him to show me what I've missed and know that God will show me so I can correct it. But that's where our peace and our confidence come from is knowing that Jesus is Lord in Christ and knowing what that means to me. That means my sins can be forgiven. I like John when he talks about how that Jesus appeared unto him afterwards and all of them were there except for Thomas. And Thomas said, I won't believe except I see it. And then he saw and he, he didn't just say Jesus is Lord, but he said Jesus is my Lord, my God. And that's where we've got to get to, to have this confidence in salvation. Not just that Jesus is Lord, but Jesus is my Lord, my God. And I know what that means, and I'm living that kind of life. And that's really the second thing that's going to take for us to, to be confident about our salvation. We have to live for Christ. I want you to turn over, if you would, to the book of 2 Corinthians and the 5th chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And listen to verse 14 and 15, if you would. Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. He says, The love of Christ compels us. I love Christ, and that's going to compel me to do what Christ says do. But he says, because he loved me and because he died for me, now I live for him. Underline that part. I live for him. I live for Christ. And that's the way our, our confidence comes. We live for Christ. And this is an idea that you see over and over in the Scriptures. Look over to the book of Colossians in the third chapter. And start in verse 1. And Paul writes and says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things not on uh, above, not on things of the earth. He says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's all about Christ, he says. Remember Galatians 3 and 20, Paul said, I'm crucified, it's no longer I that live, but Christ liveth in me. And how in Philippians 1 and verse 21, he says, For me to live is Christ. 
I want to tell you there is a big difference between living for Christ and living for myself and just sticking Christ in the cracks and a few holes in my life. He's saying we have to learn to live for Christ. Christ becomes our goal. Christ becomes our life. And we can't just be entangled in the affairs of this world. Peter would tell, or Paul would tell us this in 2 Timothy 2 in verse 4, not to be entangled in the affairs of this life. That's somebody that loses sight of why they're living. And they let all this worldliness get in their life. It is putting Christ first, as he talked about in Matthew the 6th chapter in verse 33. And so we live for Christ. I want to look at another passage as we talk about being confident. Go to the book of John in the 15th chapter for a moment. And beginning in verse 1, John 15 and verse 1, and Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the words which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it, it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And then you're going down to verse 8 and he says, uh, But this my Father glorified, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be his disciple. Now you heard him talk about there are people that aren't bearing fruit. And he said they're going to be cut off and cast out and burned. That doesn't take much imagination to know what he's saying is. Even though we profess to be a Christian, if we're not bearing fruit, we're still going to be cut off and cast out. And so we have to bear fruit. And then you listen to him and he says, those that are bearing fruit, he prunes that it can bear more fruit. I can remember well when I first studied this passage and I think I finally got the, def that got the meaning of it. When he says, we bear fruit and he will prune us. My attitude toward pruning in times past was, well, you, you cut off the bad stuff. But when somebody is pruning, like a grapevine or something, there may be just what looks to be healthy growth, but they cut it off so more of the injuries, more of the nutrients can get to certain places and the fruit can be bitter or bigger and better. And that's what he's saying It Prune my life. Get rid of some things. Maybe they're not wrong in and of themselves. Everything wrong's got to go, but even things that are not wrong, but prune them, get them out of my life so I can concentrate more on Christ and having fruit for Christ so that I can bear more fruit. And if you want to pray a courageous prayer, you bow and you pray, God, prune me so that I can bear more fruit. Because you don't know exactly where that's going to carry you. But it will carry you in a good place in as much as you will be bearing more fruit for the Lord if you follow him. And remember what he said in, in verse 8, that it's those who bear much fruit. They are my disciples. They're the ones that, that are truly going to, to know that they're my disciples. And what are the fruits that he's talking about? Well, we think most often, I think, about leading others to Christ. And we ought to be trying to lead others to Christ. But there's more than that in fruit. There's the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and all of those kind of things. 
That's a part of the fruit that he's talking about our bearing. And then you can add to that the fruits of our lips that he talks about in the book of Hebrews, how that we can sing praises unto God, and, and that's acceptable, and that's fruit. Or he talks about the fruits of righteousness. Paul is praying that we might bring forth fruits of righteousness in Philippians 1 and verse 11. And I think that's just acts that are righteous in God's sight that are done in his name. And so whatever we're doing, if we're doing right, then we're doing it in his name and for his glory. That's a fruit of righteousness. And he's not looking at just one of these, but he's looking at all of this. And he's saying, how fruitful are you? And are you bearing much fruit? And if we have nothing to, to bear, we're not going to be very confident. But if we're truly living for Christ and our life is full of fruits, whether it's, it's adding Christians to, to the number or whether it's uh, adding righteous deeds or whether it's just our character or is singing praises to him, then we can be confident because we know that we have much fruit, and that's Christ. And then one other passage about this being confident, and this is a passage that's familiar to you too, but look over to the book of Second Peter and the first chapter. And beginning in verse 5, and Peter says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Now, this is what we need to be doing if you want to be confident toward the Lord. Adding to our faith virtue, virtue knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness. And, and notice that he didn't say just have a little of this. He says these things need to abound in you. But listen to what he says afterwards. He says, for if these are in you, now if you can really add and abound in, in this uh, faith and virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness and love and brotherly kindness and love, if all of this really abounds in you, not just a little bit here and now, but it really is added into your life in abundance, he says, then you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're adding these qualities, you're not going to be barren. You're not going to be unfruitful. He said, for he who lacks these is short-sighted, even in blindness, and has forgotten that we was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Doesn't mean that we can't fall from grace, but he's saying if you have this attitude of adding to your faith, virtue, knowledge, not just a little bit, but striving to abound in these. That that's the attitude that's going to keep you from falling. And he said, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we want? To feel that we've got an abundant entrance into the kingdom? And how do we get it? Well, we become a Christian, and then we add to our faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, and not just in a little bit, but in the abounding in those. And he says, we can be confident about our salvation. And then that last thing, the building up of the church. I am hopeful by now that we have said the way you build up a church enough that you know that three steps is one, we keep the faithful faithful, we restore the fallen, and we add new members. And if you think about it, it's got to build up a church if you're doing those three. You're going to keep what you've got because you're keeping the faithful faithful. 
You're going to bring back those that have fallen, restore the fallen, and then you're going to find new members. And we do that by making sure we're faithful, making sure that we are what we should be. And as we live this Christian life, it sets us up so that we can teach others and bring others to Christ. Think about the book of Acts in the 16th chapter and begin in verse 25 for a moment. Here Paul is in prison. Uh, didn't do anything wrong. He's just in prison because of his faith. And he is singing praises with Silas. And, and the jailer hears him when there's an earthquake and, and he's heard him. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And what I want you to know is that a godly life and an invitation is powerful. If you're living a godly life and then tell somebody and invite them to come at the right time, that can be powerful. And we have some here because they saw other people living this kind of life and saw them with the blessings that they had, and they wanted them too. And now they're a part of this congregation, and they're showing others how to do it. And we need to invite people. We need to, to be passionate about Christ. Remember Paul in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, said that we ought to give heed to our doctrine, to, our, to the word and to our doctrine. And that by doing this, you can save yourself and others. This is how we save ourselves and we save others, by giving attention to the word of the Lord and making sure we're living that word. And we do it in the right way. You remember Paul when he wrote to Titus in the third chapter, talked about how that we before have been sinners, and we remember that. And so we're not a holier-thou-thou somebody over there or, or anything. It's a sharing like Aquila and Priscilla trying to, to share with Apollos the, the way more excellent. And that's our attitude toward these things. Ezra, the seventh chapter in verse 10, Ezra tells us that he set his heart to know the word of the Lord, or prepared his heart that he might know the word of the Lord, that he might do it and he might teach it to others. That's a good summation of what we're trying to say this morning. Prepare your heart to know the Word. You've got the right standard if you do that. And then you do it. And that's going to give you confidence because your conscience doesn't bother you. And then having learned the Word and doing the Word, you go out and teach others. Keep the faithful faithful. Restore the fallen. Bring in new members. I don't know exactly where you might be. I know where some of you are, but where do you fit in that? Do you count yourself faithful? Then you need to continue to be faithful. That's the way you can add value to this church. And not only that, if you can think of somebody that has fallen, then try and restore them. And if you should be here and you know that you're not right with the Lord, get right with the Lord. And that will give you value to the church. And then live your life for others and invite others to come and be a Christian. And see if you're not happy, confident, and of value to the church. If you're here this morning and somehow you're subject to the invitation, we can help you. We'd invite you to come as together we stand and sing.